Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. Last month, Georgia Governor Brian Kemp signed a new voting bill into law. And since then, the controversy over the bill has escalated. Opponents of the law call it an attack on voting rights that limits voting access, especially for minority groups. But Kemp and other Republicans in Georgia insist the opposite, that the law expands voter access. In response to this law, Major League Baseball announced it would be finding a new location for its All-Star Game, which was scheduled to be played in Atlanta this July. And Georgia-based corporations like Coca-Cola and Delta Airlines have been publicly critical of the law after boycotts threatened their operations. Now, Republicans are condemning those corporations, an unusual position for the historically pro-business party. Meanwhile, at the White House, President Biden has offered some nuanced messaging in all of this. He's called the Georgia law sick and un-American, but he's also cautioned that boycotts and canceled events could harm low-income workers. So where does the GOP stand now as it tries to grapple with the party's increasingly fraying relationship with corporate America over social and cultural issues? How will the White House and Democrats respond? And does any of this actually change the Georgia law or the actions of other states as they consider similar election legislation? This is Can He Do That, a podcast exploring the powers and limitations of American government in a time of deep division. I'm Allison Michaels. Amy Gardner reports on voting for the political enterprise and investigations team here at The Washington Post. She spent much of the past year covering all things elections in Georgia. I wanted to talk to her to get a clearer sense of what's in the bill. The details have been met with so much controversy and political pushback, it's been kind of hard to decipher the key pieces and their implications. So I started by asking Amy, what led Georgia to pass voting legislation in this moment? Absolutely an easy question, which is the rhetoric of Donald Trump, who claimed falsely that the election was stolen in Georgia. There has been no evidence to suggest any measure of widespread fraud that would have been difference-making in the outcome. But Millions of his supporters believed him and have put pressure on lawmakers around the country, including Georgia, to, quote unquote, make elections more secure. So that's where this came from. So then let's talk about what's actually in it. There's a change in there in voter identification requirements. What does that look like? There's been a little bit of misinformation about that. Uh, some folks have sort of shorthanded this provision to say that voters voting by mail now have to provide a picture of their ID. And that is not actually the case. They do have to provide an ID number from their driver's license. And if they don't have a number for their license, and I think social security card also would work, then they do have to provide an actual picture. But there are other options. So it's a little bit more complicated than it's been presented in some of the reports. So is there any data we know about who might be affected by that kind of voter ID law? 
generally speaking, voter ID laws have a disproportionate impact on lower income communities, communities of color, which have a higher proportion of folks who don't have an identification. The Georgia legislature has also provided for access to a free state identification through this bill for those who don't have an ID. Another part of this bill is that it changes some rules around mail-in voting. What are those changes? So there's a couple of different provisions in the law that address absentee voting or mail voting. One shrinks the window during which voters can request mail ballots. And this has gotten a lot of flack from critics among voting rights activists and Democrats because it literally shrinks the window when you can request a ballot. But there's one interesting aspect to this provision that I think has been reported inaccurately, and that is that it makes the deadline at the end of the election cycle sooner. And that, uh, folks inside the Secretary of State's office in the legislature say, is actually meant to protect voters so that they can't request their ballot so late, they wouldn't have time to get it and then get it back to their election official. So there's an argument that the curtailment at the back end of the period is actually a protection for voters and not suppressive. And then another thing that they've done is they have basically said that ballot boxes must be inside an early voting center or an election office, and they're limiting the number of ballot boxes that counties can use. And election administrators oppose this measure and voting rights advocates oppose it. And they say having it inside a building isn't necessary because there was no evidence that fraud occurred and the security issue could be solved just by having 24-hour surveillance. Also, having the ballot boxes inside voting locations means crowds and limited access to the hours during which those buildings are open, that kind of thing. It's worth noting that ballot boxes were never allowed in Georgia before last year. That was an emergency regulation approved by the State Board of Election to help expand voter access during the pandemic. So Republican lawmakers who passed this bill say that measure is an expansion. We're allowing drop boxes for the first time. We didn't allow them at all, and now we are. But they're allowing it in a more narrow way than was allowed in 2020. There's also this specific provision, which has gotten a lot of attention, about banning third-party groups from being able to hand out food and water at polling stations. Why is this in the bill? It's in the bill because there are allegations that are under investigation currently that campaigns and political party affiliated entities provided food and water to voters. And lots of states have rules prohibiting that kind of exchange of something of value to a voter who's literally standing in line to cast their ballot because of the potential influence, like the appearance that you're literally buying somebody's vote with food or water. The problem with that rationale is that there were allegations for all kinds of things in Georgia that there's not actually been evidence presented yet. So the fact that they're legislating based on an allegation that's still under investigation is problematic to many in the voting rights world. But you say in other states there are provisions to prevent this anyway. There are. And in fact, lawmakers and their aides who I've spoken to say, look, this is no different than laws on the books in lots of states, Democratic states, Republican states, and so on. And my response to that in talking to some of these folks was like, okay, fine, but why put it in now when you know it's going to be this lightning rod and you know you're going to be accused of voter suppression? And what problem are you trying to fix? And their answer is, 
we heard reports of this food being offered by political entities, and we don't think that's right. One last piece of this bill that I want to focus on is the part of the law that ensures that state lawmakers can control the election process more directly. Can you explain how that's included in this law? Yeah, there's two aspects that are important, I think, in this part of the bill. And one is that the Secretary of State, Republican Brad Raffensperger, who was a leading critic of President Trump's unsubstantiated allegations of fraud, it would remove him as the chairman of the State Board of Election. It would make him a non-voting ex officio member. And it would give the appointment of that chairman to the legislature, which currently is Republican controlled. So critics say that this is an outrage and it gives Republicans in the legislature too much control over state election administration. But there are some provisions that haven't gotten widespread attention. That appointee cannot have given a political contribution within the past two years. They have to be a nonpartisan. The other uh, thing that I, that they say that is sort of important is that two years ago when Stacey Abrams, the Democrat who lost to Brian Kemp in the governor's race in 2018, basically said that it was crooked for Brian Kemp, who was at the time the secretary of state, to be in charge of the administration of his own election. And so Republicans in the legislature now are saying, so this is exactly what Stacey Abrams said should happen two years ago. We are making it so that a statewide elected official who's probably running for re-election in 2022 is not going to be in charge of administering his own election. What's wrong with that? The other aspect of election administration that's included in the bill is the ability of lawmakers uh, to replace county election boards. And voting rights activists are particularly alarmed about that provision because they believe that a Republican lawmaker from rural Georgia could lodge a complaint about the administration of elections in metro Atlanta and cause that election board to be replaced. And that would mean that the largely Democratic electorate of the Atlanta area with a very large minority population would effectively have its elections administered by people who had been chosen by Republicans in the legislature who don't even represent their part of the state. Okay, so that is what's in the bill. Let's talk about something that's not in the bill. President Biden has claimed that this bill ends voting hours early, but that's not quite true. Can you explain? That's not true, and it's not clear why he said it and why it seems to have taken the White House days to kind of walk that back. But it's definitely contributed to public perceptions about this bill as sort of a objectively horrible bill that will cause voter suppression when I think the reality is more nuanced than that. Yeah, I want to understand that a little bit more. Taking all of this together, critics say the law suppresses minority votes. Governor Kemp and others say that it actually expands access. So which is it here? Which one of these things does this law do? I mean, it does both. You cannot argue that it doesn't expand access in some ways. It literally expands early voting window to be one of the most generous in the country. That particular provision is an about face from this proposal that caused a huge uproar several weeks ago that was actually going to curtail early voting on weekends, which Democrats and Black leaders in particular saw as a direct assault on souls to the polls, which is the name for, you know, the widespread Democratic turnout effort during early voting to bring folks, particularly Black voters, to the polls after church on Sundays during early voting. But that went away, and that's not in the bill. And in fact, instead, is a provision that expands early voting. So it does expand voting access in some respects. 
but it also curtails voting access. I mean, the restrictions on ballot boxes compared to last year is real. It's also true that the drop box provisions are more expansive than they were before the pandemic. And the ID requirements are certainly a new restriction that could make it harder for some voters. But again, there's an answer in each case for why they're doing it. And there's also a nuance in almost every case that isn't always explained in the rhetoric that we're hearing from politicians. So then my last question to you is, if this law was created in response to, at least as Georgia Republicans put it, in response to a need to secure elections in Georgia, the question I have is, are elections going to be more secure as a result of this law? I would say that the bill was not so much passed to make elections more secure as it was to satisfy those who, in some cases, falsely believed that the 2020 elections were not secure. In some ways, it's a solution without a problem. So it's hard to say that elections will be more secure when there wasn't a security problem in 2020 to begin with. I'm Alex Schwartz. I'm Nomi Fry. I'm Vincent Cunningham, and this is Critics at Large, a New Yorker podcast for the culturally curious. Each week, we're going to talk about a big idea that's showing up across the cultural landscape, and we'll trace it through all the mediums we love. Books, movies, television, music, art. And I always want to talk about celebrity gossip, too. Of course. We hope you'll join us for new episodes each Thursday. Follow Critics at Large today, wherever you get podcasts. After Amy clarified what's in the actual law, I sought to better understand the political and corporate reaction to it. To do that, I spoke to Mariana Sotomayor, a congressional reporter for The Washington Post. I asked her what we've seen from some corporations in response to the Georgia law. A number of corporations have been facing a lot of pressure, especially from Democrats on the onset once the Georgia state legislature was able to pass a number of these reform bills. And they, at first, were pretty cautious. They were saying, listen, this is not a great idea. This is not good to limit some voting access, especially after what we saw during the 2020 election, especially in Georgia, just so many people turning out, spending hours in line. And you saw some of that pressure build up. And in response, you saw a number of corporations really come out and even more forcefully condemn the Georgia state legislature. You saw that a little bit a couple of years ago in North Carolina, where the state legislature tried to enforce a number of transgender laws, those bathroom bills and corporations. And I think there were even artists who were going to go into the state. They pulled out and that changed a number of reforms on that stance. So Democrats hoping that would be the case. Corporations in some ways still kind of cautious, haven't necessarily boycotted too much, but it's going to be interesting to see just how corporations will continue, given that there is pressure also from Republicans saying that they shouldn't get involved. Yeah, so let's talk a little bit about that pressure from Republicans. Why are Republicans responding with backlash to the actions of these corporations? So we saw it a little bit once Coca-Cola, Delta, Home Depot started to put out some statements saying that this isn't right. They were very quick to say that these corporations were falling into Democrats' misinformation campaigns. They, of course, say that these voting reform bills are, are necessary and important to try and uphold election security. 
while Democrats obviously have been saying, and we've even heard it from the president himself, that these are very racist laws, that they are very limiting to voting access. And Republicans now kind of find themselves in a sticky place because right after the Major League Baseball pulled that all-star game out of Atlanta, you saw a lot of Republicans cry out and say, don't listen to the Democrats. It, it kind of started to fall back into this culture war situation that we're starting to see uh, across different issues, saying, you know, stop listening to the liberal, woke group. Don't listen to their influence. But they do find themselves in a tricky place because as much as they may want to boycott, they are a party that has very much protected a lot of businesses. It's an interesting dynamic that the party is going to have to figure out whether they want to be against corporations or try and still fight for them um, behind the scenes in Congress. Yeah, more specifically, McConnell has threatened what he calls serious consequences if companies continue to stand in opposition to the Republican Party on this law in Georgia. So what do we know about what those actual consequences would be? So it's interesting because I reached out to his office to try and understand what those serious consequences are. And there hasn't been tangible legislation yet to see exactly what that would mean. And that's kind of where Republicans find themselves. Do they want to put any kind of serious consequences or not? There are some, however, in the House that they're planning on introducing legislation that is targeting the MLBs, the Major League Baseball. And they, of course, are protected under antitrust exemptions. They would try and revoke that. But other than the MLB, which has really been the biggest organization to pull anything out of Georgia, there hasn't been any other corporation necessarily targeted. But Republicans are using this kind of as a warning shot, saying, listen, if you do this in Georgia or in any other state, because there are 47 states considering similar restrictions, you know, we have our eye on you. We're going to we're going to keep you honest, too. But it's so strange to think of the Republican Party as the party that's going to impose some sort of restriction on corporations, when historically that obviously hasn't been how Republicans think about corporations and business. Exactly. I mean, everyone is very quick to think of Citizens United, that big uh, ruling from the Supreme Court several years ago that essentially said corporations are people. And as people, they are able to make donations. So, you know, McConnell said that corporations should very much stay out of politics. Well, he's been one of the biggest benefactors of corporations being able to donate to political campaigns. So that is, again, another part of this dynamic. And you saw McConnell, even though he did give those initial warning shots, he corrected himself. He kind of went back and said, corporations should stay out of politics, but, you know, keep contributing. And even he said, you know what, I actually kind of gave a sloppy answer. So you were starting to see Republicans trying to correct what they were saying, maybe not be too forceful because, sure, they could say, hey, we're going to hold you accountable. But corporations could also say, all right, if that's the case, we're not going to donate to you anymore. Yeah, the role of corporations in this is so interesting because you referenced the North Carolina bathroom bills and how corporations had been influential in how that law progressed. Are we seeing real impact from corporations being involved at this point, from corporations moving events out of Georgia? Well, so far, we've seen the MLB be the ones to really move something out of the state. But it really hasn't rattled any feathers in the Georgia state legislature. You've seen even Governor Brian Kemp, who signed that into law, say, 
and, and kind of issue the same warning shots that other Republicans have. But so far, there hasn't been that much pressure. And, 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 and you can tell just because Republicans in the state haven't necessarily buckled down or said, okay, we'll change something. If anything, I believe it was the Georgia State Legislature who is trying to revoke some taxes on some corporations as a, another kind of warning shot of what's to come if you know there are any kinds of boycotts by these businesses. You wrote that the attacks on corporate America could prove useful to Republicans who are looking to energize the base of supporters who have embraced Trump's anti-establishment rhetoric. So can you tell me more about that? How does this approach by Republicans really rally the base? Yeah, so this is just another example of the Republican Party trying to figure out and define who they are. There is, of course, this more radical wing that very much embraces Trump and is trying to convince other members that they should continue to embrace Trump and his message of populism. And of course, that message of populism is one that goes against corporations or is really trying to be part of the working class and standing for all of their rights, which is obviously very different from what CEOs may want and the more wealthy. So it is empowering those voices, that Trump wing, to go against corporations. But again, Republicans who have embraced them, who are trying to protect them, it does put them in a corner a little bit. This is the most confusing strategy on all of these angles. It's very hard to sort of figure out who Republicans are aiming to appeal to in the decisions that they're currently making. And it's sort of hard to even understand who corporations are trying to appeal to and what's motivating corporations in this equation as well. Yes, it's it's definitely true. And I would even add to that, too. It's also putting Democrats in a tricky place. You saw Biden, obviously, right after Governor Kemp signed that into law, Biden and other Democrats called this the second era of Jim Crow and calling on corporations to do everything that they can to stop that influence because they see Georgia as the first case of any of these reforms happening in other states. So they were hoping that putting pressure could potentially dissuade other states and seeing the consequence of what could happen in Georgia. But now some Democrats, including Stacey Abrams, say, I understand the movement to boycott some of these corporations, but we also have to understand that these businesses have homes in Georgia. They are employing a number of people, employing a number of low-income earners as well. If there are boycotts, if if voters just stop buying Coca-Cola products, well, that's really going to affect the working class in the state. So as much as Democrats may want to put economic pressure so that the state legislature can try and reverse the legislation, in some ways what they're calling for is also going to have economic effects that could affect their own voter class. So Biden has really issued that sort of twofold message in recent days. He said, you know, these laws are bad, they're discriminatory. And then he's also said, but we don't want to take business away from people who need it the most, from the low wage earners who need this the most. So is that sort of the limits of Biden's response? Has he added anything to that? Is there an expectation that he'll weigh in more on this? So as of right now, it seems like they're a bit in messaging control, because as you said, he was really calling on the leadership of businesses to try and change this legislation. And he was asked about the masters potentially being moved out of Georgia. And while he was very quick to call on Major League Baseball to pull that all-star game out, he then said, you know what, I'll leave that opinion up 
to the masters. So definitely taking a more cautious approach. We'll see how much further he goes, but it seems like he must have heard from Democrats, potentially even from Democrats in Georgia who say, you can't be that strong, that forward on just pulling corporations out because it is going to affect a lot of people here. Is there anything beyond messaging that the White House can tangibly do to respond to the Georgia voting law? Well, they could try and pursue, you know, a number of executive actions, but Biden tries to leave a lot of legislative decision making to Congress. And if they really can't do anything, then you see him weigh in a little bit more with executive actions. You're seeing that now with guns, for example. But the House especially has already passed that H.R. 1 voting bill, which would address all of these concerns that Democrats have, would try and expand voting access among a number of different provisions. And of course, that would be federal protection. So states would could try and change, but that would go against what the government is trying to do here. Uh, the problem is, is, of course, the Senate, right? It's a 50-50 split as of right now, unless they're somehow able to pass it through reconciliation. You would need 10 Republican votes. And as much as voting rights is a very divisive issue for Democrats, it is for Republicans. So Democrats, of course, think that they could potentially be able to nuke the filibuster to try and pass something like this. It's so unlikely that they could come together and find some compromise on this issue. So maybe that could propel Biden to sign some executive orders. But as of right now, the conversations haven't reached that point. So then what happens next in all of this? Republicans are mad at corporations. The White House is sort of metering its response. This law in Georgia is in place. H.R. 1 has moved through the House. What happens next with all of this? Yeah, it, it, <laughs> you laid it out perfectly because it's almost as if everyone's realizing there's roadblocks to the argument to be able to do what they want to do. Democrats, I've heard from many of them, doesn't matter where they are on the spectrum of ideologies, they're going to try and pass H.R. 1 as much as possible. That'll be interesting to see how and if Schumer puts this on the floor in any way. So that seems to be the next step, at least legislatively, trying to push something federally. But we also have to keep an eye on a number of other states that are going to be doing this. That could potentially put pressure on whether it's the Democrats or the Republicans to amplify the message even more. But if, if there's one thing that I think is going to be a constant, it's the fact that we'll be hearing from a number of states that will continue to push these restrictive bills. And we're going to see how the public will react to that. All right, Mariana, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? Thanks so much for listening. Can He Do That? is a team effort here at The Post. This episode was produced by Sharla Freeland and Arjun Singh with logo art by Greg Manifold and theme music by Ted Muldoon.
There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.